0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of uh, New Books in Sociology of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Richard Osijo of the City University of New York. And today I'm going to be joined by Japonica Brown-Saracino, Associate Professor of Sociology at Boston University. And she's going to talk to us about her new book. Came out a few months ago through the University of Chicago Press. Uh, it's called "How Places Make Us: Novel LBQ Identities in Four Small Cities." Japonica, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a great pleasure.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So, I was wondering if you can start just by telling us a little of how you, uh, well, your your academic background, your research interests, and and how you came to do the research for this project and write this book.
1: Sure. So I am an urban sociologist who has always been interested in questions, not only about cities, but also about culture and identity and sexualities. And my first book, A Neighborhood That Never Changes, was a study of gentrification in four different communities, two Chicago neighborhoods and two small New England towns. And when I was finishing fieldwork in one of the cities, that, uh, sorry, one of the urban neighborhoods that I'd studied in Chicago, Andersonville, I was really intrigued by how a neighborhood that had been gentrified in part by lesbians um, was changing as gay men moved into the neighborhood. And what particularly interested me was how residents seemed to acknowledging or talking about the role of lesbians in gentrification once gay men arrived on the scene in sort of substantial numbers. And this made me curious about the degree to which we've sort of neglected the role of lesbian, bisexual, and queer women in urban change processes like gentrification. And so at the outset, I really thought that I was going to do a four-community comparative study of the role of queer women in gentrification. And early on, my attention was sort of redirected away from central city neighborhoods where I had assumed I would conduct the study to smaller cities because there were these great analyses of census data that suggested that lesbian couple migration is most oriented toward small cities with lots of natural amenities that tend to have a college or university, and that are not super close to a big city, but not a you know, terribly long drive, like say two to four hours from a major city. And so I set out to study the role of queer women in the gentrification of that kind of place. And I also wanted to understand why in a moment when we have these narratives that um, queer individuals increasingly can live anywhere Lesbian, bisexual, and queer women would continue to concentrate in sort of disproportionate numbers in these smaller places. So that's what I set out to do. It really emerged directly from my earlier book project.
0: Right, and and obviously identity and place are really central themes in the book. And I couldn't help but think personally as I was reading the the intro. Um, I, you know, I moved about a year and a half ago. From a large city to a village. And I remember at the time I was thinking that no matter where I go, I'll always be me. Uh, but also that, that I was going to do reinvent myself somehow, um, as a resident of a village rather than a big city urbanite. And, and, you know, I never really gave any thought to this contradiction there. Um, or I just said I'll always maintain some kind of core self. And I thought of these feelings. Um, a year and a half later as I read your book, because you're really challenging some dearly held assumptions of identity, uh, namely that we always have our essential selves uh, and that we're capable of transforming who we are and reinventing ourselves, such as by relocating. But it really turns out the, one of the main takeaways of your book, I think, is that the places that surround us significantly influence who we are and how we do who we are, how we uh, perform it. So, is, is that accurate to say that um, that really almost all identities are something that people always do in different ways, depending on their surrounding contexts?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that really, you know, sort of beautifully summarizes the core argument of the book. The only thing that I would add is that. I think it also complicates the idea that um, like, that there's a village person or a big city person, which is another common idea that we have. You know, On the one hand, we believe we'll always be who we are wherever we go, that we take ourselves with us. And then on the other hand, we think, well, if place is going to change me, it's going to change me because I move from the north to the south or from the east coast to the west coast or from a big city to a small village or from a small village to a big city. And because the four places that I studied are so similar, they're all small cities of, you know, roughly similar sizes. And the identities that I found in each place were so, so different that instructs us that, you know, there isn't a small city persona, even among LBQ individuals who otherwise share many traits.
0: Yeah, and another aspect of the kind of warrant for the book is that this is really happening at a time when when many urban critics are afraid that cities are, are losing their distinction what makes them unique so they have the same chain stores they have the same architectural styles they have the same developments and the fear is that as places become less distinct so will their inhabitants so we won't have new yorkers or bostonians anymore we'll just have american urbanites or something but you're here saying here really that places really still matter despite the more specific changes that we see occurring of the homogeneity of an environment.
1: Absolutely, and and that even very subtle distinctions from one city to another really shape people in kind of wild ways. Um, it, it was just amazing to me that very subtle differences, for instance, in the degree to which lesbian, bisexual, and queer residents feel safe and accepted can really cast them toward or away from identity politics in dramatic ways that I would never have anticipated. And I think it also, you know, the core findings of the book also run counter to a parallel narrative that we often sort of combine with a narrative about the loss of place distinction, which is about the loss of gay and lesbian neighborhoods, and maybe even of gay and lesbian identity in the contemporary context. And instead, you know, I'm finding that these individuals are really many of them going out of their way to live in places that have high proportions of lesbian, bisexual, and queer residents, and that also their um, their identities are alive and well. They just take different form in different places based on the characteristics of that place
0: right so let's get into the the case that you've that you've chosen. It's lbQ lesbian, bisexual, queer women, uh, specifically those who have moved to one of four small cities. You have Ithaca, New York, uh, San Luis Obispo in California, Portland, Maine, and then Greenfield, Massachusetts, and uh, in them they all they adapt to their local geographically specific sexual identity culture, uh, which often differ from how they had been identifying. So women who would identify as lesbian now identify in their new home as Stone Butch, for instance. So, so tell us how this finding challenges not just what we know about identity, but specifically what we know about sexual identity.
1: So there are a couple of dominant ways of thinking about sexual identities right now and I think that the book challenges many of them and one is the idea that um, we are all sort of what some people will call post gay now that um, because of increasing acceptance that that sexual identity is less salient than it used to be that fewer and fewer fewer people understand themselves primarily through the lens of sexual identity and this narrative often suggests that this is a universal term. So we would expect that, you know, no matter where you live, at least within the U.S. context, that you would be sort of orienting towards a post-gay um, identification, if not totally embracing that. I think that another dominant way that people um, sort of complicate that post-gay argument is by saying, well, actually, there is some heterogeneity, but that heterogeneity relates to social and geographic categories. So there's variation in terms of generation, you know, many people will suggest that, okay, maybe young people today adopt a post-gay orientation, but older queer people might still identify with a post, sorry, with an identity politics orientation as gay or lesbian. And then others will suggest that there might be variation in identification along the lines of race or ethnicity or region. Um, So there's been increasing attention, which is really important to Southern queer identities. There's also attention to how rural and urban queer identities might be different, but none of these accounts can explain the identity heterogeneity that I found in four cities that share many traits, right? That are all small, that are all progressive. They each have some institution of higher education. They all have lots of natural foods and, you know, um, similar amenities, bookstores that we would associate with producing very similar identities. And yet I found this heterogeneity. So I think that this forces us to think about sexual identity as much more local than, you know, um, other popular ways of thinking about sexualities right now would lead us to believe.
0: Yeah, and this obviously... It brings up the big question of if cities do indeed shape us, um, how do they do so? There must be something about them. You mentioned some of the sometimes subtle ways that uh, are part of uh, the city's larger uh, ecology. Uh, so what are some of these dimensions that you discovered to city ecology that help to shape how we think of ourselves and our identities?
1: So it, it was relatively early in the research. Well, I would say about – Two thirds of the way through data collection, I became acutely aware of the heterogeneity of identities that I was um, encountering in these four different cities and It was very clear to me that I was that the identity differences that I was encountering mapped onto the individual cities, so individuals in one city identified in one way and in another city another way. But at first, I had no idea how I could understand the origins of these identity differences in large part because both the sexualities literature and the urban literature, I felt, left me with relatively few tools to use to try to explain this heterogeneity. So basically, I embarked on a a long process of elimination where I thought about all of the characteristics of the people I'd studied and the characteristics of the cities that I'd studied. And I began to think about how those characteristics were either present or absent in each of the places that I'd studied. And eventually, this sort of process of elimination, Jack Katz refers to this as the elimination of negative explanations, led me to... Isolate three sort of facets of city ecology that I believe primarily direct the identity cultures in these cities, and those are first and foremost, abundance and acceptance, which is the degree to which residents feel safe and accepted and and perceive an abundance or the opposite of other people who share their sexual identity and difference in that you know immediate metro area. And this plays a really crucial role, I argue, in directing residents toward or away from identity politics. So in places in which residents described feeling extremely safe and accepted and surrounded by other people who are lesbian, bisexual, or queer, they found that the salience of sexual identity faded for them, that they were forging friendships and interacting with heterosexual neighbors more than with other people who were coupled um, with, a, with a same-sex individual. And so these individuals really moved away from identity politics and embraced discourses of the value of integration with heterosexuals and talked through the lens of post-identity politics. On the other hand, people who lived in cities where they felt less safe and accepted and in which they felt that there was sort of a scarcity of other people who identified like them, they were drawn towards identity politics. So sexual identity became a much more primary way of understanding who they were and talking about themselves and was a primary basis for forging relationships in the context. And I think here it's really important to note that none of these places are wildly inhospitable to LBQ individuals. I mean, these are all places that most of us, if we look sort of at a map of the U.S. and we looked at the characteristics of the places, would expect to be quite embracing of LBQ residents. And in fact, I mean, everyone nearly everyone I encountered in observations and interviews described these places as, as quite, you know, lesbian friendly, we might say. And yet, despite that, even really subtle departures from a strong sense of abundance and acceptance would turn people towards a post identity, um, sorry, an identity politics orientation. But I eventually realized that this didn't tell the whole story because in two cities, for instance, where residents, Felt uh, that that there was um, limited abundance and acceptance, and therefore they articulated an identity politics orientation. I found that they the way that people did identity politics varied greatly by city so specifically in in Portland Maine and San Luis Obispo identity politics were alive and well but the kinds of identity politics that people were articulating and practicing were really really different so in Portland for instance micro identities were highly emphasized, so people would articulate who they were using these long hyphenated descriptions that often reference gender identities as well as sexual identities and tended to socialize with other people who shared their micro-identity traits Whereas in San Luis Obispo, nearly everyone I interviewed and, and most of the people I encountered via observations talked about themselves simply as lesbian and they socialized in sort of a large umbrella lesbian community. And so eventually I realized that there were other factors at work here that would explain those differences in the way that people did identity politics or parallel differences in the way people did post-identity politics. And and so the two additional facets of city ecology that I ended up turning to 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 explain these differences are place narratives, so the stories that cities tell about who they are, which I find that residents really tend to adopt and use to explain, you know, who they are. They really internalize those identities. And then also what I call socioscape, which is really about subtle demographic differences, very, very subtle between uh, in the um within the population of lbQ residents. so, for instance, residents of Portland, Maine, um, like those in most of the other sites, are very highly educated and have attended lots of elite colleges and universities. But they, many of them attended a cluster of elite liberal arts colleges in New England, and they really adopt this as a way of talking about who they are. And so there's almost like a seminar style culture in Portland where people are debating ideas about sexualities and gender all the time, you know, in private and public settings that helps them to do their identity politics in a particular way
0: yeah so let's let's dive deeply then into these cities you you take them in order and you can go into some of these uh, some of the more specific examples so we let's start with Ithaca, the first uh, city that you focus on, uh, in which you you really identify a bit of a paradox of lesbians there who don't feel like a sense of community despite there being a large lesbian population, but they they do form very rich local ties with uh, other lesbians and straights alike, which you refer to, as you mentioned, as this idea of a post-identity politics. Take us through how that plays out in on the ground in Ithaca.
1: Sure. So many of the individuals that I interviewed in Ithaca described having moved to Ithaca, anticipating, I mean, many of them didn't move just because they were looking for to live around other people who shared their sexual identity. Many moved for jobs or work or family reasons, but even though though those were the reasons that originally motivated their moves, they moved with the expectation that they were going to be in an extremely lesbian-friendly place. And for many of them, they assumed that that meant that they would be embedded in a really rich and sustaining lesbian community, that their ties would primarily be with other lesbian, bisexual, and queer-identified individuals. And individuals. And indeed, most of them describe moving and finding an abundance of LBQ individuals everywhere. I mean, in the chapter, I have quote after quote from individuals who say, you know, I get massages from lesbians, the police officers are lesbians, I see lesbians at the grocery store on the bus to work, so on and so forth. They have this sense that that lesbian, bisexual and queer individuals are everywhere. And yet, at the same time, they articulated this profound sense of isolation from these individuals that they see everywhere. And over and over again they articulated that this that was because they did not feel that they actually needed to forge ties with other lesbian, bisexual, and queer identified individuals in the Ithaca context, that they were able to forge relationships that were predicated instead on shared life stage, like, you know, having kids of a certain age or being ready for retirement um, or shared profession. You know, many talked about shared hobbies that help them forge relationship with neighbors and others, you know, running clubs, composting education, and so on and so forth. And so they have these very, you know, as you suggested, socially rich lives. They're deeply embedded in the local community, but not in a community in which people understand the basis for their connection as being related to shared sexual identity and difference. And many were, you know, maybe the best way to describe this is they felt deeply ambivalent about this. It was not what they had expected to find. In some ways, it wasn't what they wanted to find. And yet, they were fairly satisfied by their social relationships, they felt supported, they felt accepted, and they felt a shift in how they understood themselves. Many said, when I arrived, I really thought of myself first and foremost as lesbian and now I recognize that that's really a, a secondary trait for me and I identify more and more with these other facets of myself. And it wasn't something they'd come looking for, but it, it really had changed how they understood who they were. And yet in Ithaca, there was, you know, as I'm suggesting, a clear narrative of loss that accompanied this, this transformation. They felt that it was outside of their control. They changed. They no longer were forging relationships in the way they'd expected to. And that was at once, you know, it felt inevitable, but also something had been lost was, was the narrative that they offered.
0: Right, yeah, this ambivalence is present because they, they really they yearn for a lesbian community to be a part of. It's something that they they miss or thought they would find or something like that, but they have to content themselves to being a part of what you call the, the city's general ambience community.
1: Right, right. Yeah, they find this strong sense of of ambient community on arrival Um, you know uh, one woman describes getting on the bus and knowing on the bus to work and she knows that people will accept her they'll know she has a partner and no one's going to treat her poorly because of that and if she forgets her bus fare one day other people will pay for it and that's good like it it feels satisfying in many ways but it's not the community predicated on shared sexual identity that she had expected to find and part of what's interesting about this almost nostalgic discourse for lesbian community in Ithaca is that I heard it from people who had both experienced lesbian community in other times and places, and people who were far too young to have experienced sort of the 1970s version of lesbian community that people seem to be nostalgic for. So it was um, a general place-wide narrative of loss, you know, even even articulated by the very young
0: yeah, and then you go cross-country to the other coast, to San Luis Obispo, yeah. and on the strength of what you found in Ithaca, you say how you expected to find the, a similar post-identity politics, but instead you found really the opposite, how women in San Luis Obispo embraced identity politics. Uh, almost all of the women you met really firmly identified as lesbian. Um, and really ran in lesbian-only networks and had that they had that sense of community that the people in Ithaca were really yearning for
1: Yes, I mean it it took me completely by surprise In fact, the first article that I published from the project I published on social problems And it was an argument about sort of the rise of post-identity politics and how that creates this paradoxical sense of uh, freedom and achievement and loss of community that I that I found in Ithaca and I thought that this would be sort of the big story of the book. Um, And then I went to San Luis Obispo and it was like I was entering another universe in terms of how people talked about who they were and the way that they practiced community. So as you said, almost everyone talked about herself as lesbian, regardless of past relationships with men or even current relationships with men. And, um, you know, perhaps most crucially, their social networks were very, very lesbian centered. So, you know, I describe my field work there was incredibly busy because there were all of these opportunities for observation in lesbian only spaces, you know, dinner parties, dessert hours, potlucks for older women, bonfires, you know, meeting up in the pool hall, hikes, so on and so forth, dances. Uh, So it was really an alternate social world. And I had left Ithaca sort of thinking, you know, this idea of lesbian community that informants in Ithaca were offering must be more or less a myth. And then, you know, there it was uh, in in San Luis Obispo. And, you know, it's not as though the people I'd studied in Ithaca had actually spent time, most of them in a place like San Luis Obispo, But, but here this, you know, this lesbian community was alive and well. And this is not to suggest that it wasn't without exclusions and conflict and so on and so forth, but but what I want to emphasize is that there was a community that was primarily predicated on shared sexual identity. So you had, you know, individuals of different generations and economic backgrounds and racial and ethnic backgrounds spending time together in San Luis Obispo.
0: And it was really in that city that we see um, some of the city ecology start to to really Show itself by contrasting it with what you found in Ithaca, because in San Luis Obispo, it's not about this idea of an ambient community, but what you refer to as an idea of outside togetherness among uh, the women in that city.
1: Absolutely. So, in San Luis Obispo, they take, you know, they uh, they derive a great sense of safety and comfort from socializing with one another, and. Residents much more openly described instances of exclusion or harassment, you know, occasionally of violence that they had experienced in that city that made them feel that their primary sense of social support and pleasure needed to come from other lesbian identified individuals. And of course, I mean, I, it, probably very few individuals live truly in a bubble that only contains other sexual minorities. So, you know, many of them worked with heterosexuals. They had family members who were heterosexual in some instances. So I don't want to suggest that their networks were exclusively lesbian. But what I do want to suggest is that lesbians um, were, were really at the center of their networks in a way that was wildly different from what I had found in Ithaca.
0: So we have post-identity and identity politics in Ithaca and San Luis Obispo, but then you go to Portland, Maine, and we have what you call these hybrid and hyphenated identities or uh, women who embrace sexual identity as, as adaptable and uh, flexible. It's, and it's more of what you call a queer identity politics where uh, one woman you, you have uh, identifies as queer, kinky, poly, high femme dyke. Which was my favorite one. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> how does this how does this uh, queer identity politics how does it manifest in terms of the uh, the different communities that the people form in in Portland?
1: Sure. So, um, just to, to pick up on the queer kinky polyphem i dyke, um, it, it was. It, really something to come from Ithaca where you know, in every place when I interviewed individuals, I would say, so tell me about your sexual identity. And in Ithaca, more often than not, people would say something along the lines of, well, I don't really think about that, or I like to think about myself as a person. And then in San Luis Obispo, most people would answer by saying, lesbian, you know, I am a lesbian. And then I got to Portland and I would sit down with people and say, tell me about your sexual identity. And I'd get this, you know, long, elaborate string of self-descriptors and and, you know individuals would tell me that the particulars uh, the particular descriptors that they would use might change over time within the portland context but that their sexual identity and difference was itself stable so they understood sort of their queerness as life defining and permanent but the particulars of what that looked like and felt like for them might evolve over time and so because of these very particular micro-identities that were really celebrated and intellectualized in Portland, I found that there was... A strong identity politics community, but that one that was made up of many smaller components that were organized around these micro identities. So there was a support group for butch individuals that um, they had this terrific website when I first started doing field work that would say, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but we welcome all kinds of butches, you know, tea drinking fairy butch to the preggers, butch, to the survivor, butch, and so on and so forth. So it, it created an opportunity for butch-identified queer individuals to socialize together. But in order to do that, they had to sort of advertise that they understood that what it means to be butch is varied and heterogeneous. And likewise, there was a femme community Um, There were individuals who understood themselves to be queer and punk who would socialize together and so on and so forth. So there were all of these micro communities. And then many of the micro communities would all come together in certain contexts, like Dyke March was very popular for all kinds of micro identity communities within the Portland context. So there was sort of a larger umbrella LBQ community but then these smaller components that were also very important in the daily lives of the individuals I interacted with.
0: Yeah, and what is it about Portland then that helps to explain these uh, these communities and how they played out? What's the eco- ecological conditions in Portland that you saw?
1: So I argued that Portland, like San Luis Obispo, is a place in which LBQ residents don't feel entirely safe and accepted, and they don't feel that there's sort of an overwhelming abundance of other LBQ individuals. And so this helps them to emphasize sort of the centrality of sexual identity and difference in their self-understandings and in the formation of community. But at the same time, Portland is a place that markets itself as very urban and also as cutting edge and quirky and artistic and residents really, um, embedded those frames in their self-description. So there were just striking parallels between the ways that the city markets itself and the way that individuals talked about who they were, both to me and to one another when I was conducting observations. So there's this idea that Portland is not a place in which anyone is sort of straight and narrow, right? So if you're going to do identity politics, you're going to do it in a quirky and unusual way. And then there are also... was, as I mentioned earlier, this sense that residents of Portland articulated, specifically LBQ residents, that they were a really intellectual and sophisticated group of individuals who took pleasure in talking about sort of academic theories of identity. It was the only place in which I had a couple of informants bring academic texts on sexuality or gender to interviews and residents described, and I witnessed, you know, scenes in which they would just debate identity, you know, for hours on end. And um, this became sort of part of their calling card, both as individuals and as a collective, I think. And so these things sort of merged together to produce this queer identity politics.
0: Now, it was, as I was reading the Portland chapter where we have the three – by that point, we have the three uh, different sexual identity politics and I'm thinking to myself, can you have multiple identity cultures in the same city? And then I get to the Greenfield chapter and that's exactly what you show us um, (laughs) where there's there's a group of women who – held a lesbian feminist identity politics, like in San Luis Obispo, and another that holds more of a post identity politics like you found uh, in Ithaca. So what are the conditions uh, under which these two separate identity cultures emerge?
1: So Greenfield was really the place where if I had had any doubt that cities were influencing identity cultures, that doubt was totally eliminated because it was really clear that Greenfield as a city was changing and that as Greenfield as a city changed, it was changing identity politics with it or or the way that people did. It was moving people away from identity politics. Um, But the story in Greenfield is complicated a little bit by the very close proximity of Northampton, Massachusetts, which, you know, is sometimes called Lesbianville, USA. So about a half hour to the south by car is Northampton. And I argue that the influence of of Northampton allowed earlier migrants to Greenfield to maintain a lesbian feminist identity politics and lesbian feminist communities, even as Greenfield changed in a way that rendered newcomers' identities much closer to a post-identity politics orientation. So people who had moved to Greenfield in the 1970s and 1980s tended to still talk about themselves in terms of lesbian feminism and to maintain, you know, book clubs and potluck groups and brunch groups with other individuals who identified similarly. And part of how they were able to do this, even as Greenfield was gentrifying and its narrative about itself was changing and changing the identities of newcomers, they were able to maintain this lesbian feminism in part by um, frequently engaging with people who lived in Northampton and also with institutions in Northampton. So at the same time that you had these old timers who were maintaining this lesbian feminist identity, people who are moving much more recently within the last decade or so to Greenfield spoke about themselves and the communities that they were a part of in a way that was very, very similar to how those in Ithaca talked about themselves and the communities that they were a part of. And in fact, they also referred to Northampton kind of constantly, but instead of identifying with Northampton and suggesting that Northampton was an identity resource and a community resource, The newcomers to Greenfield framed themselves in opposition to what they described as Northampton lesbians and Northampton lesbian communities. So they suggested that Greenfield is a place where you can come And stop identifying as lesbian. You can identify with other facets of the self. You can think of yourself as a family person or just a doctor or, um, you know, a farmer or an artist or so on and so forth. That it's a place where sort of the general quality of your life and the pace at which you live your life is much more important than sexual identity and difference. And one thing that really fascinated me from the get-go in Greenfield was that individuals of the same age were identifying in really different ways based on when they moved to the community. So I interviewed a number of individuals who were in their 60s or older who were new to Greenfield who identified um, in a sort of post-identity politics manner even though there was this community of other women, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who had moved to the community much earlier, who remained lesbian, feminists. So that contrast really helped me to understand how important the place you encounter when you first move there is for understanding who you are and sort of shaping how you interact with people around you in the city.
0: Yeah, that's a really great chapter. It really ties together a lot of the arguments. And and I really like just the structure of the book and how you go in order of the cities that you analyzed. And the readers really get to see how your analysis changes and how how what you you're very clear about what you expected to find and then what you actually found. So it's the Greenfield chapter is really a good, great culmination of that. Um, But going back then to the city ecology and the local dimensions that influence identity culture. You have a great chapter where you synthesize these four cities. Um, and again, the local dimensions you found are this idea of abundance and acceptance of uh, place narratives and of socioscape. And you kind of put yourself in the mind of the reader a little bit by saying how, you know, they must be thinking all along throughout the book that there must be some other factors that must be more important here uh, to shaping how people identify, such as you know, age or race or relationship status or something like that, um, and you also asked like if we if where we go shapes how we arrange and how we do our identities so much, you'd think that we'd be a little bit more aware of it, and that we would factor it into where we choose to live. But as you reiterate, neither was the case with the women that you studied; that it was these ecological dimensions and they like, except maybe on, I think one or two occasions, they were not aware of this, uh, this impact at all. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the great puzzles, I think, of the project, um, that you very, very few anticipated that their identity would change on moving, only some were self-aware of how they had changed and the people who are most self-aware of how they had changed, you know, before sitting down with the sociologists who asked them lots of questions that forced them to compare, you know, who they are now to who they were at other times in their lives. You know, the people who did have, you know, something of a narrative of how they would changed on moving were people who were pretty unhappy with how they had changed on moving They hadn't expected to change. They didn't like who they had become, but often felt sort of trapped in the new identity. Um, I know of one individual who ended up moving because she just felt she couldn't live with who she had become in Ithaca, um, but she also didn't know how to be any other self in Ithaca. And and so, yeah, I've, I think this is one of the really, um, you know, it was an intriguing puzzle for me to try to understand. And, and one answer I eventually came up with, and that I elaborate on actually outside of the book a bit in an article in Sexualities that I co-authored with Jeffrey Parker, is that, People are so um, sort of capped. This population group is so attentive to whether a place is, you know, what I'll call lesbian-friendly, just as a court- sort of shorthand. But basically, a place in which someone with an LB or Q identity can feel reasonably assured that they will be, you know, somewhat safe and accepted. That 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 way of thinking about place is so powerful that it sort of renders obsolete indicators of differences in identity culture that one might otherwise pick up on when, you know, visiting, when house hunting, when, you know, contemplating whether to attend X university or Y university. Um, And that this really ends up masking some of the differences, some of the local differences that end up being so incredibly powerful once people are embedded in a place.
0: And toward the end, you ask another question that, had really been on my mind as I was reading. Uh, are all, or at least are there other identities that are going to be influenced by city ecology? Are there going to be some that might be influenced more than others? What is your, I know you didn't, you only studied this particular identity, but yeah. what are some thoughts you have on that?
1: I mean, one way that I think about this, I mean, I suspect that all of our identities are responsive to city ecology. I think that. On the one hand, I think that marginalized individuals like you know, sexual minorities and also people who are just generally new to a place may be especially sensitive to subtle differences in city ecology. You might, really be, you might really feel and experience subtle differences, for instance, in abundance and acceptance in a way that someone in a more privileged position might be able to be slightly more indifferent to those characteristics. You might listen more closely to place narratives, for instance, as you're thinking about how to fit into the local context. On the other hand, I wonder about the possibility that these individuals, because they were relatively privileged individuals who could move around a city are more impacted by city-level characteristics than some individuals who might be more isolated in their neighborhoods might be. In other words, I wonder if it's possible that there could be a stronger neighborhood effect for those who are more socially, economically, you know, geographically isolated than there was for this population group. Because, of course, I didn't find variation by neighborhood in the way that people identified. And I think this has a lot to do with the fact that the individuals I studied tended to live in one place and work in another, you know, within a city and maybe socialize in a third place. So they really were consuming and moving through much of the, you know, the geographical space of the city, but also the social, cultural, and political space of the city. And therefore, I think that helps to explain why it's sort of the city level that mattered for them. The one other thing that I would say on this subject is that I did notice differences for instance in the way people talked more generally about some kinds of identities in the cities. So for instance there were differences in local food cultures that were subtle but present in the places. So in all of the places there's an embrace of sort of natural or you know health foods to a degree or farm to table, but the shape that this takes is is different in ways that kind of parallels the way that people do Sexual identity as well. So, for instance, in Portland, there's a lot of emphasis on cutting edge, you know, culinary innovation, and a narrative about how in Portland you can sort of afford to be on the cutting edge. Whereas in Greenfield, you know, there's there are a lot of um, new restaurants opening up but the way that people talk about food there is much more about it being wholesome and, you know, coming straight from the farm and so on and so forth. And I guess I would add one more thing on this topic, which um, I found really interesting as I was doing field work, which was that I, we shouldn't expect, I, I know I just gave the food example, and I, and I think that's real and we should wrestle with that, but at the same time we shouldn't expect city ecology to cast all identities in the same direction. So, for instance, in Ithaca, post-identity politics, you know, really dominated among LBQ individuals. But LBQ individuals I interviewed who were also you know, who were racial minorities. tended to not articulate a post-identity politics orientation when it came to their racial identities. And this has a lot to do with what the city ecology is like in terms of race and ethnicity. So one might feel a sense of abundance and acceptance when it comes to one's sexual identity group and not when it comes to one's racial and ethnic group. So there was, for instance, a Latina individual who was very post-identity politics when it came to sexual identity, You know, couldn't imagine joining any groups predicated on sexual identity, but was very clear that being a member of groups organized around her Latina identity was incredibly important for her sense of safety and connection in the Ithaca context. Wow.
0: Yeah, really. That's really interesting. I I hope folks take up this. Uh, model and uh, uh, apply it to uh, a broader array of identities to see what other kinds of ecological conditions may influence how we do different sorts of identities that we have. Um, I like. I wanted to ask about your methodology. You have a really great mix of uh, interview and observational field work based data. Um, did, was there a? You have the four cities. So was there a a, a city that presented certain challenges for you uh, more so than others, or a city that stands out as uh, simply being, say, either more difficult or easier than you thought, or what were some of the dynamics that were in your uh, in your visits?
1: Sure. So I actually found that it was easiest to collect data to to become embedded in the social scenes that I wanted to study in places where my informants embraced an identity politics orientation, because in those places, it didn't make anyone uncomfortable that I was there wanting to understand the intersections of place and sexualities that felt very comfortable because people were sort of practiced thinking of themselves in terms of sexualities and socializing with people because of a shared sexual identity. On the other hand, in the places where people um, were more embracing of a post-identity politics, fieldwork was um, very slow, and it was really hard to get access at first. And in fact, at first, I really thought that I must be doing something wrong. And eventually, the process of trying to understand why my fieldwork experiences were so different, you know, in the cities was part of what tipped me off to the heterogeneity of sexual identity cultures. Eventually I realized it it wasn't me, it was them. And it was something really interesting about them that was complicating access in some places and making it really easy in other places. And and I'll, I'll just add that while the access troubles that I had in Ithaca and Greenfield were frustrating and slowed me down, Um, I'm really grateful for them because, uh, for a couple of reasons, I mean, A, because it helped me to recognize the heterogeneity of identity cultures, but also because it forced me to be really innovative and creative and thinking on my feet all the time about how to get access to individuals and and the social scenes that they populated. And this helped to make sure that I was not overly relying on snowball sampling, that I wasn't getting stuck in a single institution, that I really was, you know, because I I was forced to uh access the population I wanted to study from every possible angle I could possibly think of. It helped me to make sure that, you know, my findings weren't really the story of a smaller social group or an individual network that I was really capturing people from um, you know, every corner of the place that I was studying. And because I had to do that in, in two cities, I adopted that practice, Especially on revisits in the other places that I was studying as well, and I think that because of the story that I have to tell is about heterogeneity, I think that that was uh, a pretty important methodologically, if accidental
0: yeah, and I think uh, it's not me it's them should be the title of your next um, <laughs> meth- methodological <laughs> article or or a book or something, and that that would be uh, I think a lot of uh, yeah. fellow qualitative researchers will get a lot out of that um so we have taken up a lot of your time already japonica um i always uh, end with a question that's almost rude to ask because you just finished this big project in this big book uh what are you working on now what's the next thing that you're doing
1: So I'm just beginning a new ethnography that's about commemoration efforts in different cities. I keep swearing that I'm not going to study multiple cities, but I seem to be doing it again. So it's very early stage, but um, I've started field work in a number of cities, and I'm interested in how people are trying to sort of mark the ways that cities are changing and think about what that means for their own lives. So, yes, hopefully there'll be more to say soon.
0: All right. Well, we'll have you back on once... uh once the book comes out, yeah?
1: (laughs) Thanks, this was wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Take care.